Book One, Chapter Three of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book One, Chapter Three. The festal tea had begun, and Mrs. Thornburg was presiding. Opposite to her, on the vicar's left, sat the formidable rector's wife. Poor Mrs. Thornburg had said to herself as she entered the room on the arm of Mr. Mayhew, the incumbent of the neighbouring valley of Shanmore, that the first coup d'oeil was good. The flowers had been arranged in the afternoon by Rose. Sarah's exertions had made the silver shine again. A pleasing odour of good food underlay the scent of the bluebells and fern, and what with the snowy table-linen and the pretty dresses and bright faces of the younger people, the room seemed to be full of an incessant play of crisp and delicate colour. But, just as the vicar's wife was sinking into her seat with a little sigh of wearied satisfaction, she caught sight suddenly of an eyeglass at the other end of the table, slowly revolving in a large and jewelled hand. The judicial eye behind the eyeglass travelled round the table, lingering, as it seemed to Mrs. Thornburg's excited consciousness, on every spot where cream or jelly or meringue should have been and was not. When it dropped with a harsh little click, the hostess, unable to restrain herself, rushed into desperate conversation with Mr. Mayhew, giving vent to incoherencies in the course of the first act of the meal, which did but confirm her neighbour, a grim, uncommunicative person, in his own devotion to a policy of silence. Meanwhile the vicar was grappling, on very unequal terms, with Mrs. Seaton. Mrs. Leyburn had fallen to young Ellesmere. Catherine Leyburn was paired off with Dr. Baker, Agnes with Mr. Mayhew's awkward son, a tongue-tied youth, lately an unattached student at Oxford, but now relegated, owing to an invincible antipathy to Greek verbs, to his native air, till some other opening into the great world should be discovered for him. Rose was on Robert Ellesmere's right. Agnes had coaxed her into a white dress as being the least startling garment she possessed, and she was like a stoddart pitcher with her high waist, her blue sash ribbon, her slender neck and brilliant head. She had already cast many curious glances at the Thornburg's guest. Not a prig at any rate, she thought to herself with satisfaction, so Agnes is quite wrong. As for the young man, who was to begin with, in that state which so often follows on the long confinement of illness, when the light seems brighter and sense keener and experience sharper than at other times, he was inwardly confessing that Mrs. Thornburg had not been romancing. The vivid creature at his elbow, with her still unsoftened angles and movements, was in the first dawn of an exceptional beauty. The plain sister had struck him before supper in the course of twenty minutes' conversation as above the average in point of manners and talk. As to Miss Leyburn, he had so far only exchanged a bow with her, but he was watching her now as he sat opposite to her out of his quick, observant eyes. She too was in white. As she turned to speak to the youth at her side, Ellesmere caught the fine outline of the head the unusually clear and perfect moulding of the brow, nose, and upper lip. The hollows in the cheeks struck him, and the way in which the breadth of the forehead somewhat overbalanced the delicacy of the mouth and chin. The face, though still quite young, and expressing a perfect physical health, had the look of having been polished and refined away to its foundations. There was not an ounce of superfluous flesh on it, and not a vestige of Rose's peach-like bloom. Her profile, as he saw it now, had the firmness, the clear whiteness, of a profile on a Greek gem. She was actually making that silent, awkward lad talk. Robert, who out of his four years' experience as an Oxford tutor, 
had an abundant compassion for and understanding of such beings as young Mayhew, watched her with a pleased amusement, wondering how she did it. What, had she got him on carpentering, engineering, discovered his weak point? Water-wheels, inventors, steam-engines, and the lumpish lad is all in a glow, talking away nineteenth to the dozen. What tact, what kindness in her grey-blue eyes! But he was interrupted by Mrs. Seaton, who was perfectly well aware that she had beside her a stranger of some prestige, an Oxford man, and a member besides of a well-known Sussex County family. She was a large and commanding person, clad in black moiré silk. She wore a velvet diadem, honnet and lace lappets, and a variety of chains, beads, and bangles bestrewn about her that made a tinkling as she moved. Fixing her neighbour with a bland majesty of eye, she inquired of him if he were any relation of Sir Mowbray Elsmere. Robert replied that Sir Mowbray Elsmere was his father's cousin, and the patron of the living to which he had just been appointed. Mrs. Seaton then ingratiously informed him that long ago, when I was a girl in my native Hampshire, her family and Sir Mowbray Elsmere's had been on intimate terms. Her father had been devoted to Sir Mowbray. "'And I,' she added, with an evident though lofty desire to please, "'retain an inherited respect, sir, for your name.' Robert bowed, but it was not clear from his look that the rector's wife had made an impression. His general conception of his relative and patron, Sir Mowbray, who had been for many years the family of black sheep, was, indeed, so far removed from any notions of respect that he had some difficulty in keeping his countenance under the lady's look and pose. He would have been still more entertained had he known the nature of the intimacy to which she referred. Mrs. Seaton's father, in his capacity of solicitor in a small country town, had acted as electioneering agent for Sir Mowbray, then playing Mr. Ellesmere, on two occasions, when his client had been triumphantly returned at a by-election, and, two years later, when a repetition of the tactics so successful in the previous contest led to a petition and to the disappearance of the heir to the Ellesmere property from parliamentary life. Of these matters, however, he was ignorant, and Mrs. Seaton did not enlighten him. Drawing herself up a little, and proceeding in a more neutral tone than before, she proceeded to put him through a catechism on Oxford, alternately cross-examining him and expounding to him her own views and her husband's on the functions of universities. She and the Archdeacon conceived that the Oxford authorities were mainly occupied in ruining the young men's health by over-examination and poisoning their minds by free-thinking opinions. In her belief, if it went on, the mothers of England would refuse to send their sons to these ancient but deadly resorts. She looked at him sternly as she spoke, as though defying him to be flippant in return. And he, indeed, did his polite best to be serious. But it somewhat disconcerted him in the middle to find Miss Leyburn's eyes upon him, and undeniably there was a spark of laughter in them, quenched as soon as his glass crossed her under long lashes. How that spark had lit up the grave, pale face! He longed to provoke it again, to cross over to her and say, "'What amuse you? Do you think me very young and simple? Tell me about these people.' But instead he made friends with Rose. Mrs. Seaton was soon engaged in giving the vicar advice on his parochial affairs, an experience which generally ended by the appearance of certain truculent elements in one of the mildest of men. So Robert was free to turn to his girl-neighbour, and ask her what people meant by calling the lakes rainy. "'I understand it is pouring at Oxford. Today your sky here has been without a cloud, and your rivers are running dry. 
"'And you have mastered our climate in twenty-four hours, like the tourist, isn't it, that do the Irish question in three weeks?' "'Not the answer of a bread-and-butter miss,' he thought to himself, amused. "'And yet what a child it looks!' He threw himself into a war of words with her, and enjoyed it extremely. Her brilliant colouring, her gestures as fresh and untamed as the movements of the leaping river outside, the mixture in her of girlish pertness and ignorance with the promise of a remarkable general capacity, made her a most taking, provoking creature. Mrs. Thornburg, much recovered in mind since Dr. Baker had praised the pancakes by which Sarah had sought to prove to her mistress the superfluity of naughtiness involved in her recourse to foreign cooks, watched the young man and maiden with a face which grew more and more radiant. The conversation in the garden had not pleased her. Why should people always talk of Catherine? Mrs. Thornburg stood in awe of Catherine, and had given her up in despair. It was the other two whose fortunes, as possibly directed by her, filled her maternal heart with sympathetic emotion. Suddenly, in the midst of her satisfaction, she had a rude shock. What on earth was the vicar doing? After they had got through better than anyone could have hoped, thanks to a discreet silent and Sarah's makeshifts, there was the master of the house pouring the whole tale of his wife's aspirations and disappointment into Mrs. Seaton's ear. If it were ever allowable to rush upon your husband at table and stop his mouth with a dinner napkin, Mrs. Thornburg could at this moment have performed such a feat. She nodded and coughed and fidgeted in vain. The vicar's confidences were the result of a fit of nervous exasperation. Mrs. Seaton had just embarked upon an account of our charming time with Lord Fleckwood. Now Lord Fleckwood was a distant cousin of Archdeacon Seaton, and the great magnate of the neighbourhood, not, however, a very respectable magnate. Mr. Thornburg had heard accounts of Lupton Castle from Mrs. Seaton on at least half a dozen different occasions. Privately he believed them all to refer to one visit, an event of immemorial antiquity periodically brought up to date by Mrs. Seaton's imagination. But the vicar was a timid man, without the courage of his opinions, and in his eagerness to stop the flow of his neighbour's eloquence he could think of no better device, or more suitable rival subject, than to plunge into the story of the drunken carrier and the pastry still reposing on the counter at Randall's. He blushed, good man, when he was well in it. His wife's horrified countenance embarrassed him. But anything was better than Lord Fleckwood. Mrs. Seaton listened to him with the slightest smile on her formidable lip. The story was pleasing to her. "'At least, my dear sir,' she said when he paused, nodding her diademed head with stately emphasis, "'Mrs. Thornburg's inconvenience may have had one good result. You can now make an example of the carrier. It is our special business, as my husband always says, who are in authority, to bring their low vices home to these people.' The vicar fidgeted in his chair. What ineptitude had he been guilty of now? By way of avoiding Lord Fleckwood, he might have started Mrs. Seaton on teetotalism. Now, if there was one topic on which this awe-inspiring woman was more awe-inspiring than another, it was on the topic of teetotalism. The vicar had already felt himself a criminal as he drank his modest glass of claret under her eye. Oh, the, the drunkenness about here is pretty bad, said Dr. Baker, from the other end of the table. But there are, there are plenty of worse things in these valleys. Besides, what person in his senses would think of trying to disestablish John Backhouse? He and his queer brother are as much a feature of the valley as Pye Fell. We have too few originals left to be so very particular about trifles. Trifles? 
repeated Mrs. Seaton in a deep voice, throwing up her eyes. But she would not venture an argument with Dr. Baker. He had all the cheery self-confidence of the old established local doctor, who knows himself to be a power, and neither Mrs. Seaton nor her restless, intriguing little husband had ever yet succeeded in putting him down. "'You must see these two old characters,' said Dr. Baker to Ellesmere across the table. "'They are relics of a Westmoreland which will soon have disappeared. Old John, who's going on for seventy, is as tough an old talesman as ever you saw. He doesn't marry his cups, but he would scorn to be floored by them. I don't believe he does drink much, but if he does, there's probable no amount of whisky that he couldn't carry. Jim, the other brother, is about five years older. He's a kind of softy, all alive on one side of his brain, and a noodle on the other. A single glass of rum and water puts him under the table. And as he can never can refuse this glass, and as the temptation generally seizes him when they are on their rounds, he is always getting John into disgrace. John swears at him and slangs him. No use. Jim sits still, looks, well, no-how. I never saw an old creature with a more singular gift of denuding his face of all expression. John vows he should go to the house. He has no legal share in the business. The house and the horse and cart are John's. Next day you see them on the cart again, just as usual. In reality, neither brother can do without the other. And three days after, the play begins again. "'An improving spectacle for the valley,' said Mrs. Seaton dryly. "'Oh, my dear madam,' said the doctor, shrugging his shoulders, "'we can't all be so virtuous. "'If old Jim is a drunkard, he's got a heart of his own somewhere, "'and can nurse a dying niece like a woman. "'Miss Laban can tell us something about that.' "'And he turned round to his neighbour with a complete change of expression, "'and a voice that had a new note in it of affectionate respect. "'Catherine coloured as if she did not like being addressed on the subject, and just nodded a little with gentle affirmative eyes. "'Strange case,' said Dr. Baker, again looking at Ellesmere. "'It is a family that is original and old-world, even in its ways of dying. I've been a doctor in these parts for five and twenty years. I've seen what you may call old Westmoreland die out—costume, dialects, superstitions. At least, as to dialect, the people have become bilingual.' I sometimes think they talk it to each other as much as ever, but some of them won't talk it to you and me at all. And as to superstitions, the only ghost story I know that still has some hold on popular belief is the one which attaches to this mountain here, High Fell, at the end of this valley. He paused a moment. A salutary sense has begun to penetrate even modern provincial society that no man may tell a ghost story without leave. Rose threw a merry glance at him. They two were very old friends. Dr. Baker had pulled out her first teeth and given her a sixpence afterwards for each operation. The pull was soon forgotten. The sixpence lived on gratefully in a child's warm memory. "'Tell it,' she said. "'We give you leave. We won't interrupt you unless you put in too many inventions.' "'You invite me to break the first law of storytelling, Miss Rose,' said the doctor, lifting a finger at her. "'Every man is bound to leave a story better than he found it.' However, I couldn't tell it if I would. I don't know what makes the poor ghost walk, and if you do, I shall say you invent. But at any rate, there is a ghost, and she walks along the side of High Fell at midnight every midsummer day. If you see her, and she passes you in silence, why, you only get a fright for your pains. But if she speaks to you, you die within the year. Old John Backhouse is a widower with one daughter, 
This girl saw the ghost last midsummer day, and Miss Leyburn and I are now doing our best to keep her alive over the next, but with very small prospect of success. "'What is the girl dying of? Fright?' asked Mrs. Seaton harshly. "'Oh, no,' said the doctor hastily. "'Not precisely. A sad story. Better not inquire into it. But at the present moment the time of her death seems likely to be determined by the strength of her own and other people's belief in the ghost's summons.' Mrs. Seaton's grim mouth relaxed into an ungenial smile. She put up her eyeglass and looked at Catherine. "'An unpleasant household, I should imagine,' she said shortly, "'for a young lady to visit.' Dr. Baker looked at the rector's wife, and a kind of flame came into his eyes. He and Mrs. Seaton were old enemies, and he was a quick-tempered, mercurial sort of man. "'I presume that one's guardian angel may have to follow one sometimes into unpleasant quarters?' he said hotly. "'If this girl lives, it would be Miss Leyburn's doing. If she dies, saved and comforted, instead of lost in this world or the next, it would be Miss Leyburn's doing, too. Ah, my dear young lady, let me alone. You tie my tongue always, and I won't have it.' The doctor turned his weather-beaten elderly face upon her, with a look which was half defiance and half apology. She, on her side, had flushed painfully, laying her white fingertips imploringly on his arm. Mrs. Seaton turned away with a little dry cough. So did her spectacled sister at the other end of the table. Mrs. Leyburn, on the other hand, sat in a little ecstasy, looking at Catherine and Dr. Baker, something glistening in her eyes. Robert Ellesmere alone showed presence of mind. Bending across to Dr. Baker, he asked him a sudden question as to the history of a certain strange green mound or barrow that rose out of a flat field not far from the vicarage windows. Dr. Baker grasped his whiskers, threw the young man a queer glance, and replied. Thenceforward he and Robert kept up a lively antiquarian talk on the traces of Norse settlement in the Cumbrian valleys, which lasted till the ladies left the dining-room. As Catherine Laban went out, Ellesmere stood holding the door open. She could not help raising her eyes upon him, eyes full of a half-timid, half-grateful friendliness. His own returned her look with interest. "'A spirit, but a woman, too,' he thought to himself, with a new-born thrill of sympathy, as he went back to his seat. She had not yet said a direct word to him, and yet he was curiously convinced that here was one of the most interesting persons, one of the persons most interesting to him, that he had ever met. What mingled delicacy and strength in the hand that had lain beside her on the dinner-table! What potential depths of feeling in the full, dark-fringed eye! Half an hour later, when Ellesmere re-entered the drawing-room, he found Catherine Leyburn sitting by an open French window that looked out on the lawn and on the dim, rocky face of the fell. Adeline Baker, a stooping, red-armed maiden with a pretty face, set off, as she imagined, by a vast amount of cheap finery, was sitting beside her, studying her with a timid adoration. The doctor's daughter regarded Catherine Leyburn, who during the last five years had made herself almost as distinct a figure in the popular imagination of a few Westmen of Valleys, her sister Dora among the Walsall miners, as a being of a totally different order from herself. She was glued to the side of her idol, but her shy and awkward tongue could find hardly anything to say to her. Catherine, however, talked away, gently stroking the while the girl's rough hand which lay on her knee, to the mingled pain and bliss of its owner, 
who was outraged by the contrast between her own ungainly member and Miss Leyburn's delicate fingers. Mrs. Seaton was on the sofa beside Mrs. Thornburg, amply avenging herself on the vicar's wife for any checks she might have received at tea. Miss Barks, her sister, an old maid with a face that seemed to be perpetually peering forward, light colourless hair surmounted by a cap adorned with artificial nasturtiums, and white-lashed eyes armed with spectacles, was having her way with Mrs. Leyburn, inquiring into the household arrangements of Burwood with a cross-examining power which made the mild widow as pulp before her. When the gentleman entered, Mrs. Thornburg looked round hastily. She herself had opened that door into the garden. A garden on a warm summer's night offers opportunities no schemer should neglect. Agnes and Rose were chattering and laughing on the gravel path just outside it, their white girlish figures showing temptingly against the dusky background of garden and fell. It somewhat disappointed the vicar's wife to see her tall guest take a chair and draw it beside Catherine, while Adeline Baker awkwardly got up and disappeared into the garden. Elsmere felt it an unusually interesting moment, so strong had been his sense of attraction at tea. But like the rest of us, he could find nothing more telling to start with than a remark about the weather. Catherine, in her reply, asked him if he were quite recovered from the attack of low fever he was understood to have been suffering from. "'Oh, yes,' he said brightly. "'I am very nearly as fit as I ever was, and more eager than I ever was to get to work. The idling of it is the worst part of illness. However, in a month from now I must be at my living, and I can only hope it will give me enough to do.' Catherine looked up at him with a quick impulse of liking. What an eager face it was! Eagerness, indeed, seemed to be the note of the whole man, of the quick eyes and mouth, the flexible hands and energetic movements. Even the straight, stubbly hair, its owner's passing torment, standing up round the high open brow, seemed to help the general impression of alertness and vigour. "'Your mother, I hear, is already there,' said Catherine. "'Yes, my poor mother,' and the young man smiled half-sadly. "'It's a curious situation for both of us. "'This living which has just been bestowed on me "'is my father's old living. "'It is in the gift of my cousin Sir Mowbray Elsmere, "'my great-uncle.' "'He drew himself together suddenly. "'But I don't know why I should imagine "'that these things interest other people,' "'he said, with a little quick, "'almost comical accent of self-rebuke. "'Please go on,' cried Catherine hastily. "'The voice and manner were singularly pleasant to her. "'She wished she would not interrupt himself for nothing.' "'Really? Well, then, my great-uncle, old Sir William, wished me to have it when I grew up. I was against it for a long time, took orders, but I wanted something more stirring than a country parish. One has dreams of many things, but one's dreams come to nothing. I got ill at Oxford. The doctors forbade the town work. The old incumbent, who had held the living since my father's death, died precisely at that moment. I felt myself booked, and gave in to various friends. But it is second best.' She felt a certain soreness and discomfort in his tone, as though his talk represented a good deal of mental struggle in the past. "'But the country is not idleness,' she said, smiling at him. Her cheek was leaning lightly on her hand, her eyes had an unusual animation, and her long white dress, guiltless of any ornament, save a small old-fashioned locket hanging from a thin old chain, and a pair of hair bracelets with engraved gold clasps, gave her the nobleness and simplicity of a Romney picture. 
"'You do not find it so, I imagine,' he replied, bending forward to her with a charming gesture of homage. He would have liked her to talk to him of her work and her interests. He, too, mentally compared her to St. Elizabeth. He could almost have fancied the dark red flowers in her white lap. But his comparison had another basis of feeling than roses. However, she would not talk to him of herself. The way in which she turned the conversation brought home to his own expansive, confiding nature a certain austerity and stiffness of fibre in her which for the moment chilled him. But as he got her into talk about the neighbourhood, the people, and their ways, the impression vanished again, so far at least as there was anything repellent about it. Austerity, strength, individuality, all these words indeed he was more and more driven to apply to her. He was like no other woman he had ever seen. It was not at all that she was more remarkable intellectually. Every now and then, indeed, as their talk flowed on, he noticed in what she said an absence of a good many interests and attainments which in his ordinary South Country women friends he would have assumed as a matter of course. "'I understand French very little, and I never read any,' she said to him once, quietly, as he felt comparing some peasant story she had told him with an episode in one of George Sand's Berry novels. It seemed to him that she knew her Wordsworth by heart, and her own mountain life, her own rich and meditative soul, had taught her judgments and comments on her favourite poet, which stirred Ellesmere every now and then to enthusiasm. So true they were, and pregnant, so full often of a natural magic of expression. On the other hand, when he quoted a very well-known line of Shelley's, she asked him where it came from. She seemed to him deeper and simpler at every moment. Her very limitations of sympathy and knowledge, and they were evidently many, began to attract him. The thought of her ancestry crossed him now and then, rousing in him now wonder, and now a strange sense of congruity and harmony. Clearly she was the daughter of a primitive, unexhausted race. And yet what purity, what refinement, what delicate perception and self-restraint! Presently they fell on the subject of Oxford. "'Were you ever there?' he asked her. "'Once,' she said. "'I went with my father one summer term. I have only a confused memory of it, of the quadrangles and a long street, a great building with a dome, and such beautiful trees.' "'Did your father often go back?' "'No, never towards the latter part of his life.' And her clear eyes clouded a little. Nothing made him so sad as the thought of Oxford. She paused, as though she had strayed on to a topic where expression was a little difficult. Then his face and a clerical dress seemed somehow to reassure her, and she began again, though reluctantly. He used to say that it was all so changed. The young fellows he saw when he went back scorned everything he cared for. Every visit to Oxford was like a stab to him. It seemed to him as if the place was full of men who only wanted to destroy and break down everything that was sacred to him. Ellesmere reflected that Richard Laban must have left Oxford about the beginning of the liberal reaction which followed Tractarianism, and in twenty years transformed the university. "'Ah,' he said, smiling gently, "'he should have lived a little longer. There is another turn of the tide since then. The destructive wave has spent itself, and at Oxford now many of us feel ourselves on the upward swell of a religious revival.' Catherine looked up at him with a sweet, sympathetic look. That dim vision of Oxford, with its grey, tree-lined walls, lay very near to her heart, for her father's sake, and the keen face above her seemed to satisfy and respond to her inner feeling. "'I know the high church influence is very strong,' she said, hesitating. 
"'But I don't know whether father would have liked that much better.' The last words had slipped out of her, and she checked herself suddenly. Robert saw that she was uncertain as to his opinions, and afraid lest she might have said something discourteous. "'It is not only the High Church influence,' he said quickly. "'It is a mixture of influences from all sorts of quarters that have brought about the new state of things. Some of the factors in the change were hardly Christian at all, by name, but they have all helped to make men think, to stir their hearts, to win them back to the old ways.' His voice had taken to itself a singular magnetism. Evidently the matters they were discussing were matters in which he felt a deep and loving interest. His young, boyish face had grown grave. There was a striking dignity and weight in his look and manner, which suddenly roused in Catherine the sense that she was speaking to a man of distinction, accustomed to deal on equal terms with the large things of life. She raised her eyes to him for a moment, and he saw in them a beautiful, mystical light, responsive, lofty, full of soul. The next moment it apparently struck her sharply that their conversations were becoming incongruous with its surroundings. Behind them Mrs. Thornburg was bustling about with candles and music-stools, preparing for a performance on the flute by Mr. Mayhew, the black-browed vicar of Shanmore, and the room seemed to be pervaded by Mrs. Seaton's strident voice. Her strong natural reserve asserted itself, and her face settled again into the slight rigidity of expression characteristic of it. She rose, and prepared to move farther into the room. "'We must listen,' she said to him, smiling over her shoulder and she left him, settling herself by the side of Mrs. Leyburn. He had a momentary sense of rebuff. The man, quick, sensitive, sympathetic, felt in the woman the presence of a strength, a self-sufficingness, which was not all attractive. His vanity, if he had cherished any during their conversation, was not flattered by its close. But as he leant against the window-frame, waiting for the music to begin, he could hardly keep his eyes from her. He was a man who, by force of temperament, made friends readily with women, though except for a passing fancy or two he had never been in love, and his sense of difficulty with regard to this stiffly-mannered, deep-eyed country girl brought with it an unusual stimulus and excitement. Miss Barks seated herself deliberately after much fiddling with bracelet and gloves, and tied back the ends of her cap behind her. Mr. Mayhew took out his flute and lovingly put it together. He was a powerful, swarthy man, who said little, and was generally alarming to the ladies of the neighbourhood. To propitiate him, they asked him to bring his flute, and nervously praised the fierce music he made on it. Miss Barks enjoyed a monopoly of his accompaniments, and there were many who regarded her assiduity as a covert attack upon the widower's name and position. If so, it was Greek beating Greek, for with all his taciturnity the vicar of Shanmore was well able to defend himself. "'Has it begun?' said a hurried whisper at Ellesmere's elbow, and turning he saw Rose and Agnes on the step of the window, Rose's cheeks flushed by the night breeze, a shawl thrown lightly round her head. She was answered by the first notes of the flute, following some powerful chords in which Miss Barks had tested at once the strength of her wrists and the vicarage piano. The girl made a little moue of disgust, and turned as though to fly down the steps again. But Agnes caught her and held her, and the mutinous creature had to submit to be drawn inside, while Mrs. Thornburg, in obedience to complaints of draughts from Mrs. Seaton, motioned to have the window shut. Rose established herself against the wall, her curly head thrown back, her eyes half shut, her mouth expressing an angry endurance. Robert watched her with amusement. It was certainly a remarkable duet, 
After an adagio opening, in which flute and piano were at magnificent cross-purposes from the beginning, the two instruments plunged into an allegro, very long and very fast, which became ultimately a desperate race between the competing performers for the final chord. Mr. Mayhew toiled away, taxing the resources of his whole vast frame to keep his small instrument in a line with the piano, and taxing them in vain. For the shriller and the wilder grew the flute, and the greater the exertion of the dark Hercules performing on it, the fiercer grew the pace of the piano. Rose stamped her little foot. Two bars ahead, last page,' she murmured. Three bars this. Will no one stop her?' But the pages flew past, turned assiduously by Agnes, who took a sardonic delight in these performances, and every countenance in the room seemed to take a look of sharpened anxiety as to how the duet was to end, and who was to be victor. Nobody knowing Miss Barks need to have been in any doubt as to that. Crash! came the last chord, and the poor flute nearly half a page behind was left shrilly hanging in mid-air, forsaken and companionless, an object of derision to gods and men. "'Ah, I took it a little fast,' said the lady, triumphantly looking up at the discomfited clergyman. "'Mr. Ellesmere,' said Rose, hiding herself in the window-curtain beside him, that she might have her laugh in safety, "'do they play like that in Oxford, or has Long Windale a monopoly?' But before he could answer, Mrs. Thornburg called to the girl, "'Rose, Rose, don't go out again. It is your turn next.' Rose advanced reluctantly, her head in air. Robert, remembering something that Mrs. Thornburg had said to him as to her musical power, supposed that she felt it an indignity to be asked to play in such company. Mrs. Thornburg motioned to him to come and sit by Mrs. Laban, a summons which he obeyed with the more alacrity, as he brought him once more within reach of Mrs. Laban's eldest daughter. "'Are you fond of music, Mr. Ellesmere?' asked Mrs. Laburn, in her little mincing voice, making room for his chair beside them. "'If you are, I am sure my youngest daughter's playing will please you.' Catherine moved abruptly. Robert, while he made some pleasant answer, divined that the reserved and stately daughter must be often troubled by the mother's expansiveness. Meanwhile the room was again settling itself to listen. Mrs. Seaton was severely turning over a photograph-book. In her opinion, the violin was an unbecoming instrument for young women. Miss Barks sat upright with the studiously neutral expression which befits the artists asked to listen to a rival. Mr. Thornburg sat pensive, one foot drooped over the other. He was very fond of the Leyburn girls, but music seemed to him, good man, one of the least comprehensible of human pleasures. As for Rose, she had at last arranged herself and her accompanist Agnes, after rising out from her music a couple of fantasie which he had wickedly chosen as presenting the most severely classical contrast to the rubbish played by the preceding performers. She stood with her lithe figure in its old-fashioned dress, thrown out against the black coats of a group of gentlemen beyond. One slim arched foot advanced, the ends of the blue sash dangling, the hand and arm beautifully formed, but still wanting the roundness of womanhood, raised high for action, the lightly poised head thrown back with an air. Robert thought her a bewitching, half-grown thing, overflowing with potentialities of future brilliance and empire. Her music astonished him. Where had a little provincial maiden learned to play with this intelligence, this force, this delicate command of her instrument? He was not a musician, and therefore could not gauge her exactly, but he was more or less familiar with music and its standards, as all people become nowadays who live in a highly cultivated society and he knew enough at any rate to see that what he was listening to was remarkable, was out of the common range. 
Still more evident was this, when from the humorous piece with which the sisters led off, a dance of clowns, but clowns of Arcady, they slid into a delicate rippling chant d'amour, the long-drawn notes of the violin rising and falling on the piano accompaniment with an exquisite plaintiveness. Where did a filette, unformed, inexperienced, win the secret of so much eloquence? Only from the natural dreams of a girl's heart as to the lovers waiting in the hidden years. But when the music ceased, Ellesmere, after a hearty clap that set the room applauding likewise, turned not to the musician, but the figure beside Mrs. Laban, the sister who had sat listening with an impassiveness, a sort of gentle remoteness of look, which had piqued his curiosity. The mother, meanwhile, was drinking in the compliments of Dr. Baker. "'Excellent!' cried Ellesmere. "'How in the name of fortune, Miss Laban, if I may ask, has your sister managed to get on so far in this remote place?' "'She goes to Manchester every year to some relations we have there,' said Catherine quietly. "'I believe she has been very well taught.' "'But surely,' he said warmly, "'it is more than teaching, more even than talent. There is something like genius in it.' She did not answer very readily. "'I don't know,' she said at last. "'Everyone says it is very good.' He would have been repelled by her irresponsiveness, but that her last words had in them a note of lingering, of wistfulness, as though the subject were connected with an inner debate, not yet solved, which troubled her. He was puzzled, but certainly not repelled. Twenty minutes later everybody was going. The Seatons went first, and the other guests lingered a while afterwards to enjoy the sense of freedom left by their departure. But at last the Mayhews, father and son, set off on foot to walk home over the moonlit mountains. The doctor tucked himself and his daughter into his high gig, and drove off with a sweeping ironical bow to Rose, who stood on the steps, teasing him to the last. And Robert Ellesmere offered to escort the Miss Labans and their mother home. Mrs. Thornburg was left protesting to the vicar's incredulous ears that never, never as long as she lived, would she have Mrs. Seaton inside her doors again. "'Her manners!' cried the vicar's wife, fuming. "'Her manners would disgrace a Winbrook shop-girl. She has none, positively none.' Then suddenly her round, comfortable face brightened and broadened out into a beaming smile. "'But after all, William, say what you will, and you always do say the most unpleasant things you can think of. It was a great success. I know the Laburns enjoyed it. And as for Robert, I saw him looking, looking at that little minx Rose while she was playing, as if he couldn't take his eyes off her. What a picture she made, to be sure!' The vicar, who had been standing with his back to the fireplace and his hands in his pockets, received his wife's remarks first of all with lifted eyebrows, and then with a low chuckle, half scornful, half compassionate, which made her start in her chair. "'Rose,' he said impatiently, "'Rose, my dear, where were your eyes?' It was very rarely indeed that on her own ground, so to speak, the vicar ventured to take the whip-hand of her like this. Mrs. Thornburg looked at him in amazement. "'Do you mean to say—' he asked in raised tones, that you didn't notice that from the moment you first introduced Robert to Catherine Leyburn, he had practically no attention for anybody else. Mrs. Thornburg gazed at him. Her memory flew back over the evening, and her impulsive contradiction died on her lips. It was now her turn to ejaculate. Catherine, she said feebly. Catherine? Absurd! But she turned, and with quickened breath looked out of the window after the retreating figures. Mrs. Thornburg went up to bed that night an inch taller. She had never felt herself more exquisitely indispensable, more of a personage. 
End of Book One, Chapter Three.